This Memorial Day weekend, it is a time when we remember those who have sacrificed greatly for freedom by the giving of their lives. And in honor of those who have given their lives for freedom's sake, I would like to ask those of you who are veterans or currently serving in our military to stand on behalf of your fallen comrades. Would you do that, please, and remain standing for a moment? Would you? Please? And I'd like you to I'd like you to stay standing and let's just observe a few moments of silence and I want to pray. Father, these who stand represent those who have given the ultimate price for freedom. And God, we thank you for the freedom we have to be able to come into this place and worship you this day. Where in many places in the world that's not possible. Father, they have left behind loved ones, relatives. Some, Lord, have passed in years already gone by. For some, Lord, the passing is fresh, it is still new, and it's so painful this Memorial Day all across our nation. God, we pray that you would comfort the orphans and the widows. Pray that you would comfort, oh God, the families left without a mom or a dad. And Lord, we pray for a day when war will cease, when your son will return and rule in peace over this earth. Father, until that time, help us, help us, Lord, to move forward with the hope of the gospel, see hearts and lives change. We ask you in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we're in a series where we have been talking about common objections towards Christianity. And if you've missed out, you can go online and catch up. But this weekend, we want to look at an objection that comes from um, the younger generation and even in the young, younger generation of evangelicals. And it goes something like this. I object to Christianity or I struggle with Christianity because it seems like Christians oppress and take advantage of the poor. Now the question is, is that true? Maybe you've heard that argument before. Is that true that Christianity, Christians oppress and take advantage of the poor? To answer that question, we're going to turn to the Bible because according to the Apostle James, it is true. Christians have oppressed and taken advantage of the poor. James chapter 2, it's a little further back in your Bible. And I want you to open there and Look at his words. James wrote his letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to brand new churches that were planted, so to speak, right after Pentecost in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey today. And he has to correct some problems that are going on there. I don't know if you're aware of this, but sometimes Christians cause problems. Did you know that? Sometimes they still act in carnal, sinful ways. I know that's not true, and Minnesota, but it was back then. It can happen, yes, even today. So listen to him correct them in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, 
but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. You, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters in Minnesota, didn't quite say that. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And so James says there's a problem in church. He says, you guys are favoring and leading toward the rich and the successful and the powerful and leading away from those who are poor and needy and destitute. He said, that ought not be. That's not what a true Christian is supposed to be like. It's not how the true church of Jesus Christ is to act like. But it's our nature. It's our nature to gravitate toward the rich and the successful and the good-looking and the powerful. Why? Well, it's our nature because we hope we'll get some benefits out of it. I have, through the years, known people who have told me they go to a specific church because there's a good business network there, because there are certain celebrities that attend there. And so a lot of times we are drawn toward the rich, the powerful, the successful because we hope we will get something out of it if not by just being where they go, maybe by getting to know them, maybe networking with them, and maybe having some benefit as a result of that. It is not our nature, however, to go toward those who are oppressed, those who are needy, those who are poor, because they don't benefit us. They take from us. And our nature, our sinful nature, is selfish. We don't like anybody taking from us. We'd rather have somebody give to us, right? How many of you would own that and say you're a little selfish besides me? So I make sure we're all on the same page, right? That's who we are by nature. And James says that can't happen in a Christian's life. That can't happen in the church's life. That's not how we are supposed to be known. Well, how are we supposed to know? He tells us in verse 5. Look at it again. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised for those who love him? In other words, my behavior is to be one which is to lean toward the poor, lean toward the oppressed, lean toward the needy. Why? Because that's where God leans. You say, are you sure about that? Well, just to verify it, look back in the Gospels to Luke chapter 4 with me to a sermon that Jesus gave in his hometown called Nazareth. Let me read to you in Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to read beginning at verse 18. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah in his sermon, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the rich and successful. Is that what it says? No, he says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The other thing, that's my job. That's what I've come to do. So if it's important to Jesus, it has to be important to his followers. And Jesus is still on earth today. You know that, right? 
He's on earth in us, in you and me. We're called the body of Christ. And so if Jesus spent his life going to the poor, the needy, the hurting, the downcast, then he expects us to tend to go that direction as well in our hearts and lives. And Jesus modeled that his whole ministry. Think about it. You know, children didn't really matter much in Jesus' day. And when a group of children were being brought by the parents to Jesus to pray over them, the apostles tried to stop them. And Jesus said to the apostles, no, you stop. Let the little children come unto me. And you guys need to be like these kids, simple and humble in faith. In Jesus' day, they didn't have time for women. A good Pharisee would get up every day and thank God he wasn't born a slave, wasn't born a Gentile, wasn't born a woman. You think there's an attitude there, ladies? Jesus made women a part of his ministry. Some of them were his greatest supporters. He reached out to women. One comes to mind right now, and that is a woman who was a Samaritan, so she has two strikes against her, who was also messing around with a bunch of men. Three strikes against her. Nobody else had anything to do with her, but Jesus stopped and had a conversation with her at a well in John chapter 4. And on the list goes the kinds of people Jesus hung out with, scoundrels, thieves, losers in the sight of the religious. Jesus just seemed to go and spend his time there. So if he did it back then, I know he wants to do it today, and he wants to do it through you and me. So the people that matter to him have to matter to us as well. It's not just enough to believe in Jesus. i got to carry out the mission of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 14 and 15. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Notice what he's saying is, if you're a real follower of Jesus, the evidence is going to follow. And so Martin Luther, the reformer, said, we are saved by faith alone. But faith must not remain alone. I'm not saved by what I do, but what I do is evidence that I've been saved by grace. That God has really entered my life and taken over. I'm going to be like him to others. And the word that describes that is found up in verse 12 and 13. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, as we say, is stop judging people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want you to err on the side of merciful. And the word mercy there in the Greek has two meanings. The general meaning is compassion. The specific meaning is to do good deeds. So when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he tells the story of a man who gets off his donkey, shows mercy, compassion by taking a man who's been left for dead, it's a parable, picking him up and rescuing him. But in a real incident, one of many, two blind men cry out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Heal us of our blindness. And everybody's trying to get these guys to shut up. And Jesus stops. And he listens. And he says he had compassion on them. And he went and he healed them of their blindness. And so the lifestyle of Jesus is to be our lifestyle. is to be the lifestyle of the church. 
And as we said before, we should not be known for what we're against, but we should know, be known for what we are for. And what we should be known for being for are the poor and the oppressed. And indeed, that's who made up the early church. Just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, when you have time. Because in that passage of Scripture, Paul describes the, the Corinthian church. He says, here's what you used to be like before you came to know Jesus. And it's not very flattering. I'll summarize it for you. He, in essence, says to them, you guys are a bunch of zeros, nobodies. But God made you somebodies by his grace and by his goodness. And so when you think about the church, when you think about the Christians that make up the church over history, by and large, they don't look like us. Did you catch that? We have a tendency to think the church looks like us. It doesn't, folks. I don't want to hurt your feelings. It does not look American. We're a small minority, a small percentage of the church today. Do you know that most Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere? Your brothers and sisters in Christ live in the Southern Hemisphere. And predominantly Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Do you know what they look like? They're poor. They've lived or are living oppressed lives. They know what it's like to be persecuted. They know what it's like to be in need and to be in want. They know what it's like to live with hardship. Yet they are coming to faith in Christ by the droves. Latin America is exploding with churches. And so are certain places in Africa and even in Asia with so much oppression. The church is vibrant. It's growing while here in North America it's shrinking. Why is that? We were just told because of who God goes to. The gospel, the sincere gospel not the American gospel, but the gospel of the Bible. Not a materialistic gospel, but the gospel of the Bible, says Timothy Keller, is number one, he says, it is empowering. I thought about that for a while. What does it mean the gospel is empowering, particularly to an audience who's poor, who's needy, who's oppressed? When the gospel comes along, what Jesus says to us is this. He says, I want you to know your past is forgiven. And you don't have to earn it. I do it for you. It's all forgiven. And I'm with you in this journey called life. Even through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. And I've got a great future plan for you. And I, I hope you're going to be here for our series, What Happens After You Die. Starts the last weekend in June and throughout July. Because he paints this beautiful picture. Get this. That's going to be here on earth because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to be back on earth again. But it's going to be earth the way it was always intended to be. Think of the Garden of Eden. I talk about that. But not only that, the gospel also improves our life because, listen, the way Jesus planned it is when I become a believer, I become part of his family called the church. If you want to picture how beautiful the church can be, read Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 and 3 and chapter 4 where it says that nobody had any needs because they bought and sold whatever they had to meet each other's needs. And they met in fellowship. They had meals together. They were truly brothers and sisters looking after each other. Did they have dysfunction? Of course. They're human beings just like you and me. Did they have issues? Of course. They're human beings like us. But when the apostles and the leaders were leading them and the Holy Spirit was moving in them, it was a little bit of heaven on earth. So somebody who's alone, somebody who's been let down, somebody who's been beat up, somebody who's been forgotten, they come into the church, suddenly they've got a family. And the church is never more like a family than when she's being persecuted. 
true in your family, right? You guys can fight with each other, but somebody from the outside starts picking on your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, you circle the wagons, right? Same thing with the church. So it's empowering. But listen, not only is it empowering, it's compelling. The gospel is compelling. So what do you mean by that? Let me give you two scenarios. First, this could be really hard for you, okay? I want you to imagine you're a middle, middle income family, all right? That was a joke. That should be easy, okay, for most of us, all right? You with me? All right. How many of you are going to have a picnic today? All right. How many of you already had a picnic today? All right. Stay with me, Ralph. You with me? Okay. Imagine you're a middle income family. You drive an SUV, all right? And you've got a job. You're fairly successful. Kids are doing well in school. Looking forward to college someday. You buy nice clothes, J.C. Penney, right? <laughs> You've got a career. You've got success. You can go out and have a meal once in a while. Life's not bad. Life's pretty good. You may even have a cabin on the lake. I assume all of you don't because you're here today. <laughs> and somebody walks up to you and says, you know what? I'm sorry you're so destitute. I'm sorry you're so poor. I'm sorry you're so needy. I see how oppressed you are. I want to rescue you. I want to do something for you. I want to, I want to, I want to help save you. I want, to, I want to make a difference in your life. Come on, man. Let me care for you. You'd look at them like they were freaks, wouldn't you? You'd be like, get away from me. What are you doing? Let me show you my car. Let me tell you where I live. Let me tell you about my job. Let me tell you about how secure I am in retirement. Let me tell you where my kids are going to go to school. Let me tell you about all these things are done. Don't mess with me. Go rescue somebody else. You'd be kind of offended by that, right? Their offer would not be very compelling. But now, and this one, you are going to have to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you're destitute. You have no, you have no place to sleep tonight. I want you to imagine you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You don't know how you're going to feed your family. I want you to imagine nobody offers you a job. I want you to imagine that you are suffering a terrible disease and you're going to die. You're sitting by the roadside and somebody comes along and they reach their hand out to you and they say to you, I don't know you, but I sense there's a need in your life and I just want to love on you. You owe me nothing, but I'm just here to help you and encourage you. I like to take you home. I like to feed you. I want to help you, your family. I want to help you find a job. I want to get you to a doctor. I want things to get better for you. I want you to feel like you've got family in this life. Now, if somebody came along in that situation, would you raise your hand up and say thank you? I doubt there are very many of us who would say, bug off, I like being this way. You say, yes, thank God, my prayers have been heard. The gospel is compelling to those who recognize the poverty of their condition. So it's very circumstantial, isn't it? That's why Jesus said, it is really hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? They don't recognize their need. We allow our outward circumstances, we think that that somehow mirrors what we need inside, and it doesn't. And it doesn't. And that's why God has chosen the poor. That's why they matter so much, because at least they're in touch by their circumstances with their utter need. And he fills the gap with the gospel. And the gospel is huge. It is not just a story of how God can change our lives, but the gospel has social and economic results and improvements as well when the church truly behaves as the church. And so I thank God for Wooddale Church. I thank God for the many ways we have sought to reach out here, near, and far to those who are oppressed and those who have needs. And every time you support 
our worldwide missions program. Your dollars go here, near and far to help out refugees, to help out immigrants, to help out the, uh, the poor and the needy, girls sex trafficked in, West, in, in uh, um, Calcutta, in the free set ministry that we support, or here locally. Pastor Richard Payne, our, our missions pastor, told, told me that we support 15 to 20 local missions that are specifically geared toward the oppressed, the needy. Worldwide, it's about 40. If you don't know about it, you ought to go on the website or talk to them about it. Let me ask you a favor, though. Don't bring us another idea. <laughs> All right? Get involved with the great ideas we already have. God's already doing. Like packing those, those meals for six, you know, six million meals. We have room for 300 of you to sign up. We even got buses that will take you down there. That will make a difference. That's being Jesus when you pack those meals here that get sent over there. So you're welcome at any time to explore what we do as a church to get more involved, to find out more about it. But that's not my real aim today. My real aim today is to challenge the way I think and the way you think. And to draw us into a lifestyle of being aware of the needs around us and letting God use us on a daily basis to, to meet those needs. Because you don't have to go downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul or halfway around the world to find the poor and the needy. They live right around you. And don't think that poverty means rags, not a nice car, or being homeless. You can have a nice car, have nice clothes, have a good job, and still there are a lot of people like that who feel absolute poverty in their soul. The poverty of loneliness, the poverty of guilt and shame and heroin addiction and all the things that happen in the more affluent suburbs. But there has to be an awareness of that. We gotta have an awareness of that need here near and far. And so that really came home to me recently. And I wanna share a story with you. I recently had an opportunity to go during the week and speak at a conference in Nairobi, uh, Kenya, where I spoke to uh, leading, leading pastors of five different nations that are hoping to plant 10 to 15,000 churches in the next five years in those nations in Africa. And I had the privilege of speaking two days straight to encourage them, to teach them on leadership and, and theology, etc. It, it was a wonderful time. But I became aware of a ministry that Wooddale Church supports and a family that we support in Kenya, in Nairobi. And I want to introduce you to them. Some of you may know them, many of you probably don't. But I want to introduce you to Eric and Tracy Hagman and their sons, Sam and Simon. They went there years ago. And they live in one of the slums in Nairobi. And believe me, when I say slum, I mean slum. And they started a ministry, and it's called Hashima. And Hashima is a Swahili word, which means dignity. Now, their primary ministry are to children who have disabilities. Because they're in Nairobi and all around the world, in third world countries especially, children with disabilities are truly oppressed have no value, are almost seen as, as somehow bad, a curse or bad luck that a family has. So there's no ministries, there's no even public kind of welfare system to help these families out who have these kids with disabilities. And so Eric and Tracy began this ministry called Hashima, which means dignity, to give dignity to these kids. 
And so I want to show you a picture of one of the rooms with these kids. And the kids are at all different levels of special needs. Some are confined to a chair with wheels. They have to be moved around. They adapt to whatever the kids' needs are with speech therapy, physical therapy, and whatever education they can possibly do. So moms bring them here for this every day. They've also provided what they call dignity jewelry, where these moms can actually make some jewelry and they sell it locally and abroad to help them have an income, to give them a sense of dignity and value. The moms can donate $5 a month that they want to help out with covering the costs that take place there in that school of taking care of these kids and ministering to them. They've also, they also bore a deep well and they have fresh water because there's no fresh water in the community, in the slum where they live in. And they make this fresh water available for pennies. And so I want to I show you the runners who show up. These are women. Talk about some strong women carrying the water on the head, on the back, in their arms. You ever thought you had a headache, right? These women will make 14 trips every day bringing fresh water into the slums. Not only that, but Eric has a background in construction, so he started a little company and provides work for those living in the slums to be able to build buildings. Now, I, when I heard that story and, and, and got wind of it and got, and, and got to know the parents who attend here at Whitfield Church a little better, I just, when I was there in Nairobi thinking about this, I was so humbled. I remember being in my room and just thinking to myself, what they do far and above anything I do, or most of us do, they see a need and they're just being Jesus in the most practical ways to those needs. And you don't have to go to Kenya to do it. Neither do I. There are plenty of opportunities here. But something's got to happen deep down inside of us to move us in that direction. So that, this becomes not just this thing I throw money at, but it becomes my life. It becomes it becomes part of my spiritual DNA. And so there's a little teacher who's going to help us. And I want to show you his picture. He's a little boy in Nairobi. He has cerebral palsy, and he's confined to this chair. Now, I want you to look into his eyes for a moment. And when I ask you a question, who do you see? Now, be careful before you answer that. Who do you see? You need to see yourself. So what do you mean, see myself? Because that's you and me. Maybe not physically, but that's you and me. It's every one of us in God's sight. That's what we look like. We are helpless. We are confined by our guilt and our shame and our sin. We are destitute. And there's not a thing we can do to crawl out and make our way. And God comes to us. And he sees us in our undignified shame and guilt. And he says, I want to take that from you. And I want to give you my dignity instead. I want to forgive you. I want to give you value. I want to put myself in you. I want to give you a purpose. I want you to have hope. See, until I lived there, remember my two little illustrations earlier? The middle-income family and the person who's on the street, hopeless. There's a sense in which every one of us needs to know that sense every day in our life that without God, I'd be a hopeless mess. It's as I own that, as I realize, it's only as I come to grips with what God has done for me that I'm able to look at others differently. 
and love on them and minister to them, whoever they are, wherever they are, giving them whatever they need. It's not like the rich guy or the rich woman who's just going to write a check and help them out because there's pride involved when I can write a check. There is, you know that? You know, our best efforts to help others, as long as I see myself as better off, I got the wrong attitude. I'm not better off. Because I see myself spiritually, I see what God has done for me. I'm just one beggar helping another beggar find out where the food is, where the hope is. But I want you to look at his face again. And I want to ask you a question. When you look in that face, that little boy, who do you see? I not only see myself, but I see the face of Christ. Because Christ gives him his dignity. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus had such dignity in heaven, so to speak. Philippians 2 tells us that, his place in glory. We talked about it last weekend. And then Christ comes to earth, and he takes on a human body. He becomes encapsulated, and he, he takes on our guilt and our sin and our shame. He becomes undignified for us while he gives us his dignity. And then his father looks at him, and his father abandons him. And does not help his son and lets his son die. Because that's what's supposed to happen to us. And then three days later, the father reaches down and raises his son up. So Christ knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be oppressed. He knows what it's like to be destitute. He knows what it's like to be absolutely helpless. And that's why he goes to people like himself. But I got to tell you something. When I was telling Marcia, and I was showing her this picture, Marcia, my wife, and I said, you know, I got to see myself like I just shared with you, and we need to see Christ in there. She stopped me. She said, whose smile is that? And I looked at the picture, and I thought, I don't know. It's a kid's smile. I'm kind of dense. She said, well, whose smile is that? I said, I don't know. Whose smile is it? She goes, that's Jesus' smile, Dale. That's the smile of God. A little Kenyan boy. Why is there a smile on his face? Because somebody in the name of Jesus came to give him dignity. And that's our job. Your job, my job, is to bring dignity to people. The dignity of grace, the dignity of forgiveness, the dignity of being valued so much that God would die for you. So when people look into your face and my face, they need to see the face of God. They need to see the smile of God. They need to see the love of God. And if we would just live our lives that way every day, I think the world would become more convinced that the faith of Christians is real and that the church lifts up and liberates, does not press down and oppress. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we're so humbled to think what you've done for us. And God, it's hard for us to imagine ourselves, but it is true, Lord. Spiritually speaking, we're all destitute. We're all oppressed. 
We're all pretty hopeless. Not pretty hopeless, we are hopeless. And you and your grace and your love reached down to us and raised us up and have given us dignity. And God, you call us now to go here, near, and far and offer your dignity to others to become the hands and the face and the feet and the love and the life of Jesus. Lord, as we just listen to this song, oh God, that describes who we're supposed to be, Lord, I pray that in our hearts would well up a desire to be Jesus. Jesus.